pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your fathers are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. Let me pray. Lord, as we contemplate your promise of a king and your fulfillment of one in Christ, as we contemplate this covenant you made with David and its development from the other covenants that you've made with man, And how you fulfilled all of that in the new covenant in Christ's blood. Lord, we pray this morning that we would understand that you are our king. All others are mediators. Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. And we need him above all else. Help us to understand how your judgment and your grace come together. How you are a God who is angry with sin, a God full of wrath toward it, a God who will not relent in exercising justice against our sin. And yet at the same time, you are a God of grace, a God who promiscuously loves us and lavishes mercy upon us. Help us understand both of those truths together, that your son, his cross, where those two truths come together in such a glorious display of both your justice and wrath and your grace and love. Help us to understand that so you might be rightly exalted in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was in high school... I remember reading a sermon. It was my junior year of high school, and we had to read a sermon by Jonathan Edwards in our English literature class. And I was in college prep English and and, uh, not paying much attention, just hoping to graduate. I think I graduated with like a 2.5 or 2.6 or something like that. Just kind of squeezed on through, tried not to do any homework, if at all possible. In fact, I don't think I did any homework in all four years of high school, not even one piece of homework. Uh, I just tested well. That's, That's how I got through I kind of knew that. But I remember in our literature class, we had to read this sermon by a guy named Jonathan Edwards. And it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
And that struck me because I didn't know much about Christianity, even less about Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans and the first great awakening in America. And, uh, and I was kind of struck by the title of the sermon. We're going to read a sermon today in class, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I was like, wow, that sounds kind of crazy. I'm going to listen. And I remember being blown away by certain paragraphs in it, um, parts of the sermon. Now, how was this sermon set up was this. Basically, what was told to us was that Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in um, Massachusetts, right? Roger, you planted a church there um, in Massachusetts. And he was preparing to preach this sermon. And as he prepared, he prayed and prayed and prayed and prepared and prepared and prayed. And he preached this sermon. And they said that it struck the people at the spirit of God through this sermon came upon the people in such great power that people were passing out in the midst of the sermon, overwhelmed by the wrath of God bearing down upon them. And that a great revival broke out from that and from the preaching of Whitfield and Wesley also. And what happened was what was considered the first great awakening in the American colonies and in England. And so you understand in that awakening Prior to that great awakening, less than 10% of the people of the colonies attended church ever, anywhere. In other words, that was a day that was filled with more forsaking of God and religion than our day is by far. Man, how things change as a result of that preaching and as a result of the Spirit of God. And so I was struck so much by the sermon as I listened And I want to read you guys a couple of paragraphs out of the application section of the sermon. I want you to hear how Jonathan Edwards talks about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10 thousand times greater than it is yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell. It would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God And that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all 
that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new and before altogether unexperienced light in life are in the hands of an angry God. However, you may, may have reformed your life in many things and may have had many religious affections and may keep us keep up a form of religion in your families and closets and in the house of God. It is nothing but as mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may be of the truth of what you hear by and by, you will be fully convinced of it. Those that are gone from being in the like circumstances with you see that it was so with them. For destruction came suddenly upon most of them when they expected nothing of it. And while they were saying peace and safety, now they see that those things on which they depended for peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. And is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to half to see you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night. That you were suffered to awake again in this world after you close your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning. But that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that has been given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you were held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed, incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing you've ever done, nothing that you can ever do to induce God to spare you one moment. That's just a section of the application of his sermon. He spoke of the terrifying reality of the holiness, justice, wrath, and power of our God. He also reminded people. 
that it was the mere patience of God that saved them from instantly burning in the fires of God's wrath. He reminded them that when they rolled out of bed in the morning, the reason they didn't instantly drop into the pit of God's fury in hell was because his patient, merciful hand kept them from it. He reminded them that they have no hope without a mediator. No hope apart from a covenant of grace. No hope apart from the cross of Christ. Look, if we're ever to understand the grace of our God, we must also remember that grace is only glorious against the backdrop of judgment. Our God is to a judge to be feared greatly and a savior to be fled to repentantly. And today we're so focused. We are so focused on avoiding thinking about concepts or speaking about truths that make us and others uncomfortable that we've made grace seem cheap. What difference does it make that God is a God of grace If our biggest problem is not the terror of his judgment, but is instead our psychological concerns or some family conflict we have or some desire to be successful or prosperous. If that's all God is saving us for and saving us from in Christ, what difference does his grace make? Who cares? To see him as anything less than the king of judgment, holiness, wrath, fury, love, grace, and mercy is blasphemous. And to preach a gospel that fails to proclaim that God's grace saves from the judgment and wrath of him is a damnable gospel. When God extends grace to us in Christ, he does so to appease his own wrath against himself. He turns his wrath on himself, wrath that's due us. He turns on himself. He saves us. When you say you're saved, who are you saved from? You're saved from God. Just saved from the devil or sin. Yes, technically in some measure, but ultimately you're saved from God, from his wrath. Look, I'm so weary of my own life making the cross into less than it is. And in the life of the church, we make the cross and the preaching of the church into less than it is. Why would God the Father, the holy God of the universe, eternally decree to crush his own son? Why? So he could make your family life better? Is that why the God of the universe kills his own son? To deal with one of your unhappiness problems? To deal with our lack of gratefulness? So that we'll be more grateful? That's it? Is that a result? Hopefully. Is that a sin that we're ungrateful or that we have family? Yes. 
But why does God ultimately do it? To save us from his own wrath. Hear that? I was running around Hume Lake and uh, this week and listening to a sermon by C.J. Mahaney, um, a guy who's in Maryland, and he was preaching a sermon called The Scream of the Damned. Sounds like a fun sermon, huh? (laughs) And as I was listening, he talked of um, something I'm actually talking about next week, which is why I was listening to him. He talked of Jesus and how Jesus went to the cross. And while he was on the cross, he cried out, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, Jesus screamed the scream of the damned. Do you want to know what the people in hell will cry out for eternity? My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Jesus cried that in our place. What? What? What can be greater than that? That's the song we'll sing. Forever. We will stand before the throne of the king, the lamb, and we will say, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Do you know the cry of the damned? The scream of the damned of Jesus is what we will glory in for eternity. John Piper said that those who try to minimize the wrath of God and they try to do so in eternity by saying that when we go to heaven, we will not remember anything painful or sin or suffering or any such thing. It'll all be, you know, happy thoughts. Won't remember any of that. He said that those people are speaking damnable error because they neglect that the greatest, most horrific, most painful, most sinful act in the history of mankind will be the center of our experience in heaven. It will be what we glory in. Yet this isn't the God that we hear about much. Today I want to see how God brings together throughout Scripture this truth of himself as the king of judgment and of grace. That's what we're going to look at. I want you to see God continually communicating his judgment and grace. And as you see his judgment, you will see the glory of his grace against it. So let's look first at the story of God's king and how we learn about his judgment. I said at the beginning of this series that the kingdom of God basically is defined as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. 
And if that's the case, then God is the king of that, right? So whenever the king is present, the kingdom is also present. And God as the king of creation was present in the garden with his people, Adam and Eve, in his place. And man rejected him as sovereign, the fall. Man said, I will not obey you. I will obey my own desires. And rejected him as sovereign. And as a result, man no longer lived in the kingdom of God. We had sinned against the king. And he could no longer have us as his people in his place under his rule and blessing. Because God cannot associate with sinners. He's holy and he's just. And we're sinful. And he can't associate with us. Because of our sin, we can no longer experience him immediately. You guys hear the word immediately, right? Come to my house immediately. You guys, you guys use that phrase. When we talk about what something is immediate, we say God can't be experienced immediately. What we mean is the way that Adam and Eve experienced God in the garden face to face. That's the immediate presence of God. We can't experience God that way anymore as sinners. Therefore, we must experience God immediately or through a mediator. Does that make sense? Can't experience him immediately. We must experience him immediately through a mediator. That is the only way in which we can now experience him because we are at enmity with him and reconciliation must happen and reconciliation comes through a mediator. God promised to establish himself as king once again. He promised to. But because of our sin, he planned to establish himself as our king and bring us into his kingdom through a mediator. When he promised to reestablish the kingdom, he said, I'm going to send a man who will be a mediator. He'll be the king. We see the first clues of that promise in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, God says to the serpent, will arise and crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And we see that this man, this king, will be the serpent crusher. He would crush the head of Satan and he would crush Satan's attempts to rule this world through sin. He would come as the king and would die for the sins of, of his people. We see in Genesis 3.15, he would die for their sins. His heel would be bruised. Thus saving us into his kingdom and making us a people under his rule and blessing. That's what we see at the early part. He'd also come to judge Satan and the world. That king that was promised in Genesis 3.15 is the one who we call Jesus. He came to be the mediator between God and man. First Timothy 2, right? There is but one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. He came to reconcile us to God and to make us God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's what he came to do. And he accomplished this through his perfect sinless life, his death on the cross, paying for our sin and his resurrection from the dead. And he ascended to the right hand of the father, rule and reign. 
And he promised to come again and judge all those who remain in their sin. What I want you to understand is while the New Testament tells us the fulfillment of that first little promise in Genesis 3.15, what I want you to get a hold of is that the Old Testament has pictures all throughout it of what that king would be like. It shows us types, in a sense, of the king. Pictures. You guys have heard of a prototype car, right? It's the prototype. Proto meaning first type. It's giving us a picture of that car, what it's going to be like. Now they talk about concept cars instead. Well, there were, in a sense, prototypes. There were types of the Christ throughout the Old Testament. They gave us pictures of what Jesus would look like. And the story of the Old Testament is the story that pictures Jesus as the ultimate coming king. It's the story that shows man's need for a mediator and pictures the work God does among his people as to what type of king he is who's to come. And all of it, all the history of the Old Testament points you forward to the fulfillment in Christ. So if you had to break your Old Testament, New Testament into parts, your Old Testament you can call promise, and your New Testament you can call fulfillment. That's how you look at it. In fact, we see the need for a mediator in three ways in the Old Testament. Here's what we see. We see God give us prophets, right? What do prophets do? They speak the word of God. They mediate God's word. God's word comes immediately to them and immediately to us. Does that make sense? The priests, they mediate God's presence. On the day of the year, the day of the atonement, one of the priests is made clean. He goes into the immediate presence of God and mediates God's presence to us and his blessing to us. The king mediates God's rule. God sets up the king. The Bible's clear that there is no ruler who's been put in place but by God. And God is not any different in doing that in the Old Testament with Saul and David and Solomon, etc. Those kings were appointed and put there by him. And he mediates his rule through them. All three of those pictures come together in one man. The man, Christ Jesus. Who mediates the presence of God as our priest who mediates the word of God, who is himself the word of God, who mediates the rule of God and blessing. When man fell, God promised to send a mediator, a king who would crush the serpent and die for his people. That promise grew in Genesis 49. See, what happened is God finally in Genesis 12 came to a man named Abraham and said, through your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so Abraham said, okay, he had Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the chosen son. Isaac then had Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the chosen son. Jacob then had 12 sons, one of whom was Judah. And a promise was made to Judah in Genesis 49.10 that the scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah. In other words, through Judah's tribe would come the king. 
And then God gave them in Deuteronomy regulations for the king they would eventually have. What's interesting is that Deuteronomy, so you know, is the story of the retelling or the second telling of the law and the story of the people of God being brought out through the Exodus. If you want a summary of the story of the Exodus and the law that was given, you can read Deuteronomy. Why? Because Moses was telling the second generation about it. And why is he telling them? Because the first generation is not going to be allowed to go into the promised land because of their sin. So he wants them to not forget what God has done. And in Deuteronomy, he tells them there is a king coming. And here's the kind of king you should have ruling over you. And he gives them the regulations. And then in Judges, if you read Judges, several times, and even at the end of the book, it seems to assume that Israel needs a king. And anticipates the coming king when it says this, there was no king in the land. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So if this is true, if God promised a king, if God knew that his lordship as king and his kingdom had to be mediated through a man, and he promised Israel that they would have one, then why in the world in 1 Samuel chapter 8 does God say this? Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Why does he say this? This sounds appropriate, like an appropriate request from the Israelites, given the promise they would eventually have a king. Look at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Why is it that if God always intended to bring a king to Israel... A king who would be the type through whose house would come the Messiah, the ultimate king. Why is it that when Israel finally asks for one, God says they've rejected me as their king? Sounds like an appropriate request, given the information they have to go on. Yet God then says, they've rejected me. Why? Because they did not want a king who would mediate the rule of God. They wanted a king who would replace the rule of God. Do you hear that? They wanted a king like all the other nations had. And what God said is, I will bring you a king who will mediate my rule. He will be a king after my own heart. He will be a king who desires to rule on my behalf. That's not what the Jews were interested in at the time. They just wanted a king to protect them because they didn't trust God's promise. That's how they rejected him. It's not that so much that they asked for a king that was a rejection of God. It's the motivation for why they wanted a king. They wanted a king because they didn't trust God to rule them. God promised they're going to get a king. But they didn't trust him to fulfill his own promises. They thought they had to get it done. You don't often fa fail to trust God's promise 
and my basic necessities, right? Will God provide for this? Will God provide for that? How will this happen? I just don't often trust him. Change my family and friends through the work of the Spirit. Will God change them? I want them to be changed. I hope he'll do it. If he doesn't, I'll nag until they do. Right? I'll get it done. To keep his promise to bring about his glory and our good. Especially when it comes to politics for me. Or to be my all-sufficient treasure. And thus, I seek to find my treasure and satisfaction in other things because I don't trust him as that. And so I seek satisfaction in the enjoyment of food or in the worship of my children or in the gaining of the favor of people or in entertainment or lust, whatever it is. I neglect to trust God's promise to be all I need and to richly provide for me as my king. And so I try to provide for myself. And you know what's amazing about that? In the midst of my rejection of him, my lack of trust in him, he's gracious enough to bring judgment into my life, right? Through letting me reap some of the consequences of my own sin and to discipline me. And he's gracious enough to stay as my king. I receive both judgment and mercy, both as an act of grace to me, even when I don't trust him the way I should. God still keeps his promises. Even when I don't keep my end of the bargain. And God still blessed Israel as well. Israel rejected him and God still blessed them. He gave them a king. In fact, he actually, he eventually gave them the king through whom would come their ultimate king. Look at second Samuel seven, which I read earlier since we're there. So I want you to see this promise. David says, I'm going to build God a house. I'm rich. Look at the big kingdom, the big castle in my kingdom I have. I'm going to build God a house now. That ark can't be in the tents anymore. I'm going to do God a favor. And Nathan says, well, God's been with you. Go do whatever you want. And God comes at night and what does he say? You're going to build me a what? When did I ever ask for that? Never. And he tells David, you're not going to build me anything. I'm going to build you a house. You think you're going to build me a house? No, I'm going to build you a house. And look what he says, starting in verse eight. Now, therefore, you thus you shall say to my servant, David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, 
that you should be prince over my people, Israel. Do you hear what God's saying to him? You were a nobody boy shepherding out there in the pasture. And I took you and made you king. You're going to do what for me? And he goes on and he says this. And I have been with you, verse 9, wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before, from before you. Who killed Goliath? Not David. God. Did David throw this sling? Yes, he did. But who enabled David to do it? God did, he reminds him. Who made David a conqueror among many peoples with his armies? God did. God did this work. He's reminding David of it. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Who's going to make your name great, David? I will. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Did you, did you hear this? Does David doing anything here? Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Do you hear that? That's a promise about Jesus and Solomon. And I want you to understand why I say that. Look at verse 14. I will to him a father And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Here's what he's saying. David, your physical son, Solomon, will build me a house. And he did, didn't he? He built the temple. And he will rule. And he did. And when he sins, I will discipline him. And he did. But your son is just another type pointing to the ultimate son of God who will rule forever. And he will build me a house, which is the spiritual house. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. You don't have to turn there now. Go there and read it. We are being made into a household of God. In Christ's body. And how does Christ also refer to himself? As the temple, doesn't he? Goes on, he says this, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You hear that? I will establish my king. And he will build my house and he will rule forever not you you don't do any of that he does god does it all and that's jesus what did we do to bring jesus here nothing did we we did nothing he came because of god's good pleasure not because we asked for him 
In fact, when he came, we killed him. We helped a lot, didn't we? We killed the Messiah. You can say, no, it was them, but it was for your sin that he died. You participated in that. I participated in that. And had we been in their place as sinners, we would have done the same thing. Now, we may not have participated in the crucifixion, but I guarantee you, or in betraying like Judas did, but I guarantee you, we would have been like Peter and the rest of the disciples, fleeing for the hills, saying, I don't know the guy. Don't stick me up there with him. Don't think we wouldn't. We betray our Christian brothers and sisters because they commit small little sins against us or because we're afraid to be associated with them in some way. Don't think that when the power of Rome was turned on us and the eye of all the people of Israel was turned on us, we wouldn't have rejected Jesus right along with Peter. Don't think we wouldn't have. We would have, as did everybody, by the way. There's an effective ministry, huh? From the watching world's perspective, you get to the end of your life and everyone rejects you. Except your mom. (laughs) Which you know is not going to happen anyways. Right? If we understand that God always intended to give Israel a king, a king who would prefigure the ultimate king, Jesus, a king who would be both savior and judge. If we understand that, I want to point to two themes quickly. One is grace and the other is judgment. I started with them and I'm going to end with them. What I'm hoping becomes clear is that God must and always does judge sin. Yet at the same time, he desires to and always does show grace. Both things happen. In fact, judgment is the backdrop against which grace looks glorious. God wants to show the glory of his grace, and he does so through decreeing the fall and through decreeing judgment of sin and through decreeing salvation in Christ. Just read Ephesians 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in him. He predestined us to be sons. Why? Why did he do all that? Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. Everything. All of history exists to magnify the glory of the grace of God in Christ. All of it. That's what it's all about. God did everything, including exercising his judgment, so we would see the glory of his grace. In fact, you can look at judgment and grace in the covenants. Think about these guys. God covenants or promises to bless Adam, doesn't he? Just don't do this, Adam. Don't eat that fruit. And what does Adam do? He eats the fruit. And you think, it's all over. Man blew it. Here comes judgment. And he did because he cursed, didn't he? But even in the midst of the curse, God was gracious to man. 
promising that one day the king would come who would be the savior and judge. And even taking care of Adam and Eve's sin by slaughtering some animals and covering their nakedness or their shame, extending grace to them. Adam violated God's law and God said, Adam, you violated it and Israel will violate it and all other people, the Gentiles, that being us, will violate it. And so I will send my son who will keep it. Judgment and graciousness. God covenants with Noah. Man turns sinful. God floods the world, takes out everybody, says, I'm going to restart with this guy and his family. Restart it with this guy and his family. He makes a covenant with him. Noah, I will bless you. I will never flood the earth again. I put my rainbow in the sky to mark the fact that as a sign that I will never do that again. And Noah says, thank you, Lord, and gets naked and drunk. That's what he does. That's a great response, isn't it? Talk about godliness and trust, huh? And what does God do? God brings some judgment to Noah's family. Eventually, man falls into increasing sin all the way to the point of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, when they try to build a tower to say, we're as great as you and exalt themselves. And what does God do? In the midst of all that sin, Noah's sin, the sin of Babel, he brings judgment by spreading people out all over the face of the earth and confusing their languages. And then he brings grace by coming to Abraham and saying, I make a covenant with you that I will bless all those nations that rejected me through your family. Judgment and grace. God covenants with Abraham. And what's the first thing that Abraham does? Listen to this story. God covenants with Adam. What's the first thing, the next thing we see him do? Sin. God covenants with Noah. What's the next thing we see him do? Sin. God covenants with Abraham. And what does Abraham do? He gets to Egypt with his wife and says, that's my sister, you can have her. Just don't hurt me. And then he sleeps with his wife's concubine. Sin immediately, right after God covenants with them. And God brings judgment to the family of Abraham. They have lots of troubles they shouldn't have to be going through if they would keep covenant, but they don't. And at the same time, God gives them grace. He doesn't stop keeping his promise. David. Well, actually, let me go to Moses first. God covenants with Moses and all Israel. He takes them out of Egypt, provides for them. They get into the wilderness. And what's the first thing we see them doing? Complaining. This food isn't good enough. Right? They're like the Goldilocks church attenders. This church is too big. This church is too long. This church is too hot. This church is too cold. They're just complaining about everything. We do it, don't we? They don't trust him. They don't trust God to defeat the Canaanites. He gives them the Ten Commandments. They don't trust him. He just drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And now they're like, we're not sure if you can take out these Canaanites, God. We're not going to do it. And you, and you know what they, God does? Fine, judgment for you. Here's your judgment. You will not go into the promised land. Moses 
And all the first generation of Israel will not go into the promised land. You know who will go instead? Joshua and the second generation. In other words, I will keep my promise. I will show you judgment and grace at the same time. In fact, he gives the law, the violation of which leads to judgment. And then at the same time, he gives the law. He gives the sacrificial system, which leads to what? Grace. And then David He covenants with David. Now listen to all these leaders. He covenants with David to give him a house, to make his name great, to establish his throne forever. Can a king receive a greater promise than that? No. And what does David do after he receives this covenant? Keep reading in 2 Samuel. Just go about two chapters. And the next thing you know, David is up on a rooftop looking down at a naked woman going, she looks good. Knows who is her husband is and calls her over anyways and rapes her. And then her husband, Uriah comes back and sits at the steps of his castle basically and won't go home to his wife because he's so loyal to David, the King. And so what does David do? I don't want him to find out that Bathsheba is pregnant by me. So he calls in his generals and says, put him out on the front line where he'll get killed and then pull the soldiers back so they can kill him and kills this man who's loyal to him and steals his wife whom he loved greatly. And God says of him, that's a man after my own heart. That's the man whom God covenanted with to bring his Messiah. What happened to David? Judgment. David lost his first child through Bathsheba. God brought judgment to him. Death of his first child through her. And he brought brought grace. He brought his son Solomon. Who would continue the kingdom and through whom the Messiah would eventually come. See that picture every time? Judgment, grace, judgment, grace. All dependent on God. I want you to see the fulfillment of that judgment and grace when it comes together at the cross of Christ next week. That's where we're going to go next week. We're going to come to the greatest picture in history of God's judgment and grace coming together in one place. He took the judgment on himself. In Christ, so we could receive grace. We're going to take communion here in a minute. And as we do, we're going to sing of the King of judgment and of grace. And you're going to come to the table. And when you come to the table, I want you to remember. I want you to remember that the cup you're drinking from is the cup of God's grace. The cup of the new covenant. And the reason you drink from that cup is because Jesus drank from the cup of God's wrath in your place. Let me pray. Lord, pray that we would come together during our time of communion. And as we drink from your cup, we would remember that another drank from the cup of judgment in our place. And now, because of him, we drink from the cup of grace, the cup of the new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. 
Help us to meditate on that. Help us to recognize what a gracious God you are in the midst of judgment. In your name we pray. And we ask that your son would be exalted. Amen.